Um, so John, John chapter 20, and, I, and I've titled this sermon specifically, Why Are You Crying? Uh, that's going to be mentioned two different times in this passage. Why are you crying? Or do, you, do you not realize that Jesus lives? It's such a powerful, powerful phrase. And so before we really dig into that text of John chapter 20, I, I'm going to be kind of going about this in a roundabout way. But I really hope that that this will be helpful, impactful, uh, enlightening to you as far as how we understand Jesus, not just what he did in the New Testament, but how the entire Bible points to him. And so I just want to be able to do that. So the first um, kind of point, if you will, is that Jesus predicts his death. And a matter of fact, if, if you look at any, any Bible, really, and if you turn into, into Matthew, into John, you're going to see different headings, uh, kind of in bold, we'll say, Jesus predicts his death. And it'll say Jesus predicts his death the first time, the second time, the third time. There's actually a fourth time, which I'm going to mention just briefly. Um, but they, they kind of miss something. And I, and I have a, a quote here from John Calvin. He says this, So great is the influence of preconceived opinion that it brings darkness over the mind in the midst of the clearest light. All right? So so when we have this preconceived notion, these these preconceived ideas, these pre-understandings of how this is how things work. That Jesus is going to claim that there is life and death. And then the disciples are going to go, okay, yeah, that makes sense. I get that. What they don't understand is that even right in front of them, even in our own Bibles and the headings, as Jesus predicts his death, he also predicts his resurrection. And yet we are just so blind to see that because we don't ever expect in, in any narrative life, and death, and then life. <laughs> it's just not how life works, but that's exactly what Jesus does. And so Jesus protects his death and his resurrection. And so just a little bit of context around this, when I look at these passages, uh, specifically in Matthew, that we're going to see some different things uh, pop up on this. And that's going to specifically be the fact that um, Jesus is going to set his face towards Jerusalem. All right, that, that there's this, uh, it's called prophetic performance art, right? That Jesus is physically going to do something with his body, with his face, to symbolize some, some deeper thing that he's about to do or that he's going through, right? And so he's physically going to turn and he's going to set his face toward Jerusalem and imply and, and live out this prophetic art of saying, I'm going to that place to fulfill one mission, and that is to shed my blood for all of humanity, but I'm going to be raised again, right? He, that's, this is what he says. So in Matthew chapter 16, 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. And then on the third day, be raised to life, right? He's, he's teaching this to his disciples and they're not getting it, right? They, they don't understand that they have these preconceived notions again of death, I get, but raised raise from life. And Jesus, I'm not going to let you die. We're not going to let that happen to you, right? And then in Matthew chapter 17, 9, it says this, as they were coming down the mountains, and this is wild because this is this crazy story called the transfiguration of Jesus, that he's, he goes up to this mountain, and then Moses and Elijah show up, these two dead guys, but they're standing there, and they're like, what is happening? This is crazy, right? Jesus, everything's going on. Your, your face is shining like the sun. What's going on? And so as they're coming down the mountain, Jesus instructs them, this is Peter, James, and John, don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man, that's me, 
has been raised to life from the dead. And they still don't get it. I mean, he, you can't more explicitly say, I'm going to die and be raised from the dead. You can't do it. Matthew chapter 17, verse 22. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And on the third day, right now he's going to get specific. Now on the third day, he will be raised to life. But then it says, and the disciples were filled with great grief. Why? Again, because so great is the influence of preconceived opinion that it brings darkness over the mind in the midst of clearest light. He's, he's explicitly telling them what's going on. They're not getting it. And here, this is when, when, when Peter's like, God, this, Jesus, this will never, I will never let you die. I will never let people kill you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> right, Peter, do you have any idea what you're doing? Do you have any idea what's happening here? You are, you are telling me that I'm not supposed to go die for the sins of, your, of the world and, and your sins, Peter. You're acting like Satan right now. So I want you to get behind me and not distract me on my mission as I go to Jerusalem. And then in chapter 18, verse 17 through 18, it says, now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem on the way. He took the 12 aside and said to them, again, here we are the fourth time. We are going up to Jerusalem. The son of man will be delivered over the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. All right, that's another specific thing that's gonna happen. He will be mocked and flogged and crucified. All right, he's getting really specific with him now, right? He's not holding anything back. And then he says on the third day, he will be raised to life. Right? I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna die by crucifixion from the hands of the Gentiles, from the Romans, but I will be raised again from death. So what are the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus' death? Because he's going to do this. He's going to say, man, how, how does Jesus know this? How is he explaining this to his disciples? There's a lot that we could do, but just even what he just said there, I want to look at those, that he's going to be handed over to the Gentiles, the Romans, and Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is just full of prophecies about Jesus and what he's going to have to go through. But in, in Psalm 22, verse 16, it says, dogs surround me. Right, dogs was the uh, Jewish kind of insult for Gentiles, right? These Gentiles, these dogs will surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me and they divide my clothes among, among them and cast lots for my garment, which all that's going to happen. All that's going to come true. He's going to be flogged. His bones are going to be exposed, that his garment is going to be sold and be gambled over. The second prophecy is that he is the scapegoat. We can look at Leviticus chapter 16 and look at this beautiful analogy that what would happen within a camp is that there would be these two goats. One of them is going to be sacrificed, is, is actually going to be killed. Its blood is going to be shed to symbolize the shedding of blood that will let God pass over those sins until the ultimate sacrifice takes place, right? Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And yet, God does not care about the blood of a, a goat or a bull or anything like that. It doesn't work. It's not sufficient enough. It just lets God pass over until the ultimate sacrifice happens. But there's this other goat, right? There's two of them. So one of them sacrificed. The other one, they would take out into the wilderness. They would let it go outside of the gate. They would kick it out of Jerusalem. They'd kick it out of the camp, whatever, wherever they were. And they'd smack it and they'd say, get out of here. And that would symbolize, right? The priest would lay its hands on the head of this goat to symbolize the sins being passed over on that goat and our sins being put into this goat and removed from the camp. And Jesus is going to do that same thing. He's a propitiation. He's payment for my sin and he's expiation. He's the removal of our sin 
that all of our sin, all forgiven, exile done, right? We just sang that. The third one is that he becomes a curse for us. In Galatians 3, 10 through 14, it says this. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Okay, so he's going to, let's just try to follow the Apostle Paul's logic here. All those who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. If I try to, to do this, that, this, and that, he says you're under a curse. Why? As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. All right, so, so if you're going to do that, you got to do everything perfectly. And then he says, clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. So he's saying, even if you did all these laws, which was possible, right? Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 29, these, these things are possible for you to do, to, to, to live under this law, but it's never going to save you. Why? Because what, what does the apostle Paul say? Clearly no one relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. And he's quoting Old Testament here, almost this whole entire passage. The righteous will live by faith. If I'm living by faith, well, I can't depend on the law to save me. Well, I've got to do all this. I got to do this, 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 this. Wait, but I'm not living by faith now. I'm living by the law. Now he's saying it doesn't work that way. We're cursed. He says the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Right? Jesus is going to be hung up on a tree for us, on the cross for us. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Now that's all foreseen and foreshadowing his, his death, right? But before we look at the prophecies surrounding his resurrection, is there anything in the Old Testament that says the Messiah, the Christ, must actually be raised from the dead? Well, before we really look at that, I want to specifically look at this passage in John chapter 20, this resurrection Easter story. So we're going to get there in a very roundabout way, but I promise we will get there. So kind of this first point in this story is that love moves us to action. Again, this is John chapter 20, starting in verse 1. It says, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. All right, so it says here that while it was still dark, so we're talking 3 to 6 a.m., all right, and Mary is going to be the first one to go visit Jesus' tomb. Now, it's been Friday night. Jesus was killed all day Saturday and Sunday. Why did they wait? Matter of fact, in Jewish tradition, you were only allowed to go visit the tomb within the first three days because then the, the decomposition would really start to set in. And, and, and that would, that's not pleasant, right? So they would say, hey, we're going to, we actually need to go within three days because once they start to, to decompose, then they're not recognizable anymore. And, and, and their spirit leaves them. It gets a, gets a little weird there. But so she couldn't do that because on Friday night, we get, then the Sabbath starts and they weren't allowed to go do things like this. So early on Sunday morning, before the sun even comes up, Mary runs out there to the tomb because she loves Jesus. Jesus set her free from seven demons that were possessing her. She had nothing to give except her devotion and following and love to Jesus. And so she goes out there early in the morning and she goes and she sees that the stone had been removed from the entrance. That wasn't normal. Why, 
Why would the stone be open? There should be guards there. Somebody took it, right? Who, who knows who took it? It could have been uh, the Jewish people who just hated Jesus at that time. It could have been the Romans. If they just didn't want any more controversy around Jesus, it could. Maybe it was the disciples. Who, what happened? She didn't know what happened. And I love this. This is, and I, and this is kind of one of my favorite narratives in all of the Bible. I love how the disciple John and the apostle John writes this next narrative that we're about to read. All right, I kind of have in my notes. I know you, you may not be seeing them or looking at the PowerPoint, but it says this. It's just a journal, Peter. No one's going to read it, right? I just, in my mind, I, I kind of picture this happening, that that John is writing down, taking some notes, doing some stuff, writing, writing this text down. And Peter's hanging out with him. And he's like, hey, John, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm just remembering, just remembering some stuff. And he's like, oh, you talk about me a lot in there. What? I said, hey, don't worry about it. No one's going to read it, except it's going to be the best-selling book uh, in, in the world. <laughs> and, and, and this is the book of the Bible that everyone points any new Christian to, or if somebody's checking out Christianity, if you're here, and you're like, man, what's this Easter thing about? What am I doing? Read the Gospel of John. Um, and, uh, so anyways, this is, this is what happens. I love, and I'll make some, I'll make some points now. So she, this is Mary Magdalene came, came running to Simon Peter. Okay. So she wakes up early in the morning, goes to him, comes running back to Simon Peter and the other disciples, uh, sorry, uh, came running back to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Okay. So that's the first thing. So John is the author here. He's referring to himself. So there's Peter. And also the one whom Jesus loved. All right, he's, he's talking about himself here. And she said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. Right, we don't know who that they are. She doesn't know who that they are. She's very confused. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter, and again, here we, hey, no one's gonna, we still good? I, I thought I saw a glitch there in my, in my uh, camera. Um, so Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb, right? So Peter goes and this other disciple, John's talking about himself, both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first, right? So he's saying, I'm a little bit faster, a little bit younger than Peter, right? Let's not forget, and God, Jesus loves me, loves me more. Uh, just saying, just throwing that out there, just going to put this in this text, no big deal. It says this, he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there but did not go in. All right, so John says, I got there first, but I didn't go in. But I looked and I saw, I saw this fabric. I saw the strips of linen lying there, but I didn't go in. And then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb, right? So Simon gets there and he rushes right on in. And he saw the strips lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was lying in its place separate from the linen. All right, so in a Jewish burial specifically, this, these strips of linen, you would, you would take the body and you would wrap it and you'd put herbs in there. And so we read from the story that Nicodemus uh, donated a lot of herbs and things to kind of wrap in this. And again, this was to keep the smell down, the de decomposition. They didn't have the embalming uh, things that, that we had, uh, we have now. And so they're, they're wrapped and then they would cover, cover the head and the face, right? Because there are people that would want to come and, and still see uh, the face of their loved one. And so and those things now are just, they're just laying there, right? Because what would happen is later on after the decomposition had taken place, the, they would actually go back in and collect the bones and put them in a sepulcher. And that's what they would kind of go and, and bury. Uh, or, or when you'd think of like a, a graveyard, and um, that's, that's what they would have. And Jesus calls uh, the Pharisees whitewashed sepulchers, right? You look really pretty on the outside, but you are dead bones on the inside. 
That's what he's talking about. And that's what's happening here. Okay. So the, so the linens are all there, but, the, but that's all they're seeing. All right, but I love this. And we're going to see that love makes us believe. Finally, the other disciple <laughs> who had reached the tomb first, right? I'm just going to just one more time, just one more time. I, I reached the tomb first, also went inside, but it says he saw and he believed. Now, what did he see? What did he see that Peter didn't see? What, what, what happened in John's mind that made him see and believe, right? Looking back, it says that in verse seven, that the cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen, right? So the, the head covering was here and you, you have the body, the linen that was wrapped all still together. And I think something clicked for John. I think John looked at that and said, how could he have ever gotten out of that by himself? And if he didn't do it by himself, how is it all still sitting there the way it should have been, but now there's no body in it, right? So somebody unwrapped him, stole the body, and then tried to neatly put, he's like, no, that's not what happened here. Some miracle has happened here. Somehow the body of Christ has gone, gone through these death claws, He's alive. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and he believed because he loved Christ. I have a quote here that I'm going to read from William Barclay. It says this, the part that love plays in this story is extraordinary. It was Mary who loved Jesus so much, who was the first at the tomb. It was John, the disciple who Jesus loved and who loved Jesus, who was the first to believe in the resurrection. That must always be John's great glory. I mean, can you, I mean, in glory in heaven someday, right? When the, when new earth, new heavens and meeting the apostle John Walker and be like, hey, hey, remember that time when I outran Peter and then I believed first? He even, he even saw it first, but then I, I believed. It's pretty cool. He was the first one to believe. He was the first man to understand and to believe. Love gave him eyes to read the signs and a mind to understand. And then the next verse in chapter nine, it says this, they still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to be raised from the dead. All right, so, so he's saying the other disciples, they, they just, it clicked for me and I'm, and I'm going back and I'm rereading in my mind these Old Testament stories and, it's, and I'm realizing, wow, this is all about Jesus. Right? Could you imagine being, being John, right? It says here that they, the disciples went back to where they were staying. So John and Peter go back to where all the disciples are and they're, and Peter's like, someone took the body. I don't get it. And John's like, are you, listen, right? He, he rose from the dead. He said this, he said this. And we can read this in our scriptures, right? Imagine being John. Guys, you don't get it. You're not understanding. He said this. So what did they miss? What, what is it that these disciples just couldn't see that they were not able to understand, they weren't able to, to comprehend? There's a lot of things we could look at, right? Uh, when we look at the Old Testament, there's this uh, image of typology that when we look at, are there any prophecies about Jesus being raised from the dead? You're not going to find any passages of scripture that say, on the third day, the Messiah will rise from the dead. You're not going to find it. All right, but what you're going to see are these typologies, these people, this imagery that screams, Jesus or the Messiah must be raised from the dead. They weren't expecting it to happen like this, but it happens like this. And Jesus called it, right? God does some really, really big things in the Old Testament. 
and he does redemptive things, and he actually even does resurrection-type things, and he always does it, guess what, on the third day. And we're going to see that in several places. And so I'm going to specifically look at Genesis chapter 22, but we could see this, that God uh, descends from Mount Sinai to give uh, his presence to his people on the third day. Uh, Hosea chapter 6, 1 through 2, this is specifically talking about the restoration of Israel from exile. But it says this, he has struck us down and he will, uh, he will bring us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. All right, these are just prophecies about what's going to happen to Israel, and Jesus is the true Israel. We can look at Jonah being swallowed by the whale and in the darkness for three days, and then spit back up to preach salvation to the people of Nineveh that don't deserve it. Now, we could look at these different things, but I want to look at Genesis chapter 22. And I'm going to kind of go back and forth. I'm going to look at the Old Testament and, I, and just trying to play in John's mind, what is it now, knowing who Jesus is, that I now understand this side of the cross? I didn't get it. I didn't get Genesis chapter 22 before it was about Jesus, but now I, now I see that. And we're going to actually see that in John's writing. Genesis 22, verse 2, it says this, uh, this is going to be the story of, of Abraham, uh, the, really the father of the Jewish uh, faith, um, our father, that we are of his seed as well, even though we're Gentiles. That it says this, and um, that he is uh, asked to go and sacrifice his son, uh, which now that I have sons, um, this may be difficult for me to get through. <laughs> I just, I have a really hard time reading this. Genesis 22, verse 2, it says this, Then God said, Take your son your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain I will show you. I want you to take your son, your only son, who you love. All right, and this is going to be reminiscent now in John's writings. Years later, John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And whoever believes in him will not perish, will not be a, a sacrifice, will have eternal life. Genesis 22, looking at verse 2 now, it says, Abraham took the wood from the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And just the imagery here, the typology that Isaac is carrying the wood that's going to kill him. And in John chapter 19, verse 17, carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull. He carried his own cross. Genesis 27, or 22, 7 through 8, says, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Could you, could you imagine being Abraham here? I, I can't as a father. Hey, Daddy, Daddy, where's the lamb? Where's the lamb that's going to die and cover our sins. And Abraham's faith here, God, God will provide a lamb. God will provide. And then we see this, though, in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. all right, this wasn't a lamb that was going to be stuck in a bush 
This wasn't a lamb that was going to be killed and its blood sprinkled on the doorpost of the mantle so that God's wrath would, would pass over. This is going to be behold, to quote John the Baptist, behold the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. That Jesus is going to pay for our sins by shedding his own blood. Abraham, your son will be spared, but my son will not be spared for your sins. Even more so, Genesis 22, verse 5, Abraham said to his servants, stay here with the donkey and I will uh, take the boy and go over there and we will worship when we come back to you. And we will come back to you, right? He's, that's, he's calling it. He said, I know something about my God. He's made some promises about Isaac. And even though I'm going to sacrifice him, we will both come back to you. Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19 says something about this. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice he who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Genesis 22, three through four, early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took, it, took with him two of the servants and his son Isaac. And when he had enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out, for the place that God had told him about. All right, so, so he already knows what he's about to do. He's not taking the wood and everything, and his son Isaac, his son's dead in his mind, and then here it is. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place at a distance. On the third day, this symbolic resurrection of Isaac's going to happen, right? Abraham knows that his son is dead. His son is going to die, and then on the third day, he receives him back from the dead. Isaac figuratively figuratively dies and is figuratively raised from the dead and given back to his father. But Jesus does actually physically die and he is physically raised from the dead and reunited with his father so that we can be united with our father. Going back to John chapter 20, one through 18, we see that love is blinding. We're going to go back now to to Mary. Right now, picture Mary. She goes out to the tomb. She runs to the disciples. The disciples run back out there. She runs after them. Must be a little bit slower or something, but it says she ran back and there was no one there. Mary stood outside of the tomb crying. And as she wept, right, just the, if, you, if you've ever been to a loved one's tomb, I couldn't imagine going to that graveside and then actually seeing, seeing the, the tombstone and the coffin gone. I Right. If those of you who, who might be there, could you could you could you imagine the, the grief? She's weeping. Uncontrollably, and she bent over and looked into the tomb and she saw two angels in white seated there with Jesus where Jesus body had been. One at the head and the other at the foot. So I think she's seeing, but she's not seeing. If you've ever been been crying so much and so hard, your eyes are, are puffy and, you, and you, you can you can kind of see, but you can't. I think that's what's going on here. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? Well, she doesn't get it yet. And she says, they've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they have put him. She doesn't even wait for an answer for them, right? At that time, she turns around and she sees Jesus standing there, right? But she did not realize who that this was Jesus, right? Again, I think she's just overcome with grief. She's sobbing uncontrollably. And he asks her again, woman, why are you crying? 
Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, right? She didn't even begin to conceive that this could be Jesus or, or anything. But she loves Jesus so much that she just begs, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. She's not thinking that she's alone. She's not thinking that, is there any way that I could possibly carry this body back? She just wants to see Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Mary. That's it. He just calls out her name. And she turned toward him and cried out in Arabic, Rabbi, which means teacher or rabbi. That he called her out by name. There might be some of you right now that I really believe that Jesus is calling you out by name. That maybe you didn't know, you don't believe in any of this stuff. This is Just a couple days ago, I was trying to talk to my three-year-old and explain to him that Jesus is alive. That, no, no, he lived a couple thousand years ago, but he, he died, but then he rose again from the dead and he lives now. That's crazy. It's foolishness to those who don't believe. But I can look at these passages and I can tell you that right now Jesus is crying out your name. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, right? So, so Mary just falls at his feet and embraces him. And he says, no, don't hold, don't hold on to me for I have yet to ascend to the Father, right? Don't hold on to me. I got I to get out of here. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending my Father, your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples and shared the news. I have seen the Lord. Right? Mary now is the first one who's going to get to see the risen Christ. So John is in that room and he's like, guys, you don't get it. I get it. I think he rose from the dead. And they're like, no, man, you're crazy. And then Mary comes in and is like, I've seen the Lord. It's true. And they're like, nah, man, you guys are, you guys have lost it. And she told them what she, what they had said to uh, the, sorry. And she told them that he had said these things to her. And again, I, they're all just, they're all confused, right? And to go back to that, that quote from, from Calvin. So great is the influence of preconceived opinion that it brings darkness over the midst of the mind in the midst of the clearest light. Here are my, my good, my best friends. And they're saying that he actually rose from the dead. Nah, man, there's no way. It doesn't work that way. He lives. One other quote from John or William Barclay, excuse me, it says this. Here we have the great law of life. In any kind of work, it is true that we cannot really interpret the thought of others unless between us and them there is a bond of sympathy. It is at once clear, for instance, when the conductor of an orchestra is in sympathy with the music of the composer whose work is being played, right? My dad was a, was a conductor, still have his baton. And being a conductor isn't just keeping people in time. That, 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 that. I don't know why I picked that song to do. That's just band. That's not what it is, right? It's, it's feeling it and it's being emotional with that. And when you connect with that music, it is incredibly emotional. And that's what he's saying here in this quote, that this love, this connection of being in sympathy, love is the great interpreter. Love can grasp the truth when intellect is left groping and uncertain. Love can realize the meaning of a thing when research is blind. Once a young artist brought a picture of Jesus to 19th century French painter and illustrator, Gustave Dorier, uh, Dory, um, with a little thing, for his verdict. 
Dorier was slow to give it, but at last he did so in one sentence. Here's what he said. You don't love him, or you would paint him better. <laughs> we can neither understand Jesus nor help others to understand him unless we take our hearts to him as well as our minds, that we have to give our hearts fully to him, that we have to love him. And the only reason why we can love him is because he first loved us, that he died for us, that he paid for our sins, and he shares his righteousness with us so that God's wrath will be poured out fully on Christ instead of us, which we deserve. We can now love because he first loved us. First Peter chapter 1, 3-9 through nine says this, Praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, right? Our hope, what Peter does, and, and if you went, man, this is year, I feel like it was years ago. It probably was two, two years ago that we preached through first Peter. Everything that Peter teaches hinges on the resurrection of Christ. That if he's not raised from the dead, we are all wasting our time. What are we doing here? Everything that we believe and love about Christ hinges on the fact that he's raised from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. And he's here saying, suffer for a little while. This doesn't mean a little while, like a couple months being locked in my house. He means your entire lifespan is just a brief moment in compared to the glory that we will share with Christ. These have come, so these, these, these struggles and the suffering, these things have come to prove the genuineness of our faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, perishes even though refined by fire, that result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And this is kind of what I, I want this whole thing to be about. Do we, do we love Jesus? And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for your receiving the end result of your, your faith, the salvation of your souls. Gospel application, he lives. He is risen. He's risen indeed. There was this old hymn that we used to sing all the time growing up. Um, I think it was just called He Lives. But the chorus, and it kind of ended like this, you may ask me how I know he lives. And it ends with, he lives within my heart. And I'll be honest, as a kid, the song kind of freaked me out because I pictured a little man in my heart. It's not what this is talking about. Jesus abides in me and I with him. And as he and the Father are one, we are one. Come and welcome sinner, come. That I'm allowed to sit down at the table and feast with my brother, Jesus Christ, and my Father, the creator of the universe. I know he lives. He has to. Or none of this makes any sense. <laughs>